Hello and welcome to this last GCP short before Christmas 2020 produced in collaboration with TMF Group. Over the next 18 minutes, I will be joined by good friends Karen Jenner and Joseph Fimbo, insurance premium tax and global program experts from TMF, and Derek Bridgman, risk consulting practice leader at SRS Europe. As we continue to see new captives come on board and existing ones expand, we will be discussing how different programme structures, such as deductible reimbursements, deductible buy-downs and financial interest clauses, impact IPT compliance, and also touch upon some of the new financial lines increasingly being written by captives. So we've heard a lot this year about how captives are only growing in size and of course taking on more risk or writing new lines altogether. But I thought it would be good to hear a bit more detail in how we are seeing the industry responding to the hardening insurance market and to take a look at some of the more innovative program structures that are being designed, the compliance implications of differing program design, and of course a focus on IPT compliance specifically. Karen, how is the hardening insurance market impacting IPT compliance and are you seeing an increase in inquiries around different international insurance solutions? Thanks, Richard. Yes, we're definitely seeing a shift, not just in the type of inquiries we're getting, but also where these inquiries are coming from. Uh, We're definitely seeing an increase in consultancy inquiries. These are coming both from brokers who are looking at more innovative solutions for their clients and exploring and where they're exploring different markets to provide cover solutions and wanting to ensure that any solutions they're proposing would be compliant. But we're also seeing inquiries from corporate policyholders, those most notably driven by an increase in non-admitted placements on global programmes. More noticeable possibly on the financial line side, but but it is broader than that. And where non-admitted cover is provided outside of Europe, responsibilities for the taxes on the insurance premiums or the risk often sit with the local policyholder. So in some instances, that could be fairly straightforward, for example, where it's VAT or GST uh, due in the local territory. But in some territories, the taxes may not be part of the local business's standard accounting processes. And indeed, often the local business may not even be aware of the insurance coverage. So they may need assistance in settling the liabilities. Also, it is, I think, fair to say that um, the increase in premiums means that the tax consequences on any program structure may be more significant uh, and therefore ensuring their compliance becomes more important across the board. Yeah, of course. As, as insurance programs get bigger, the numbers just just get bigger, of course, don't they, Karen? Absolutely. So, Derek, yeah, great to have a captive manager, captive consultant uh, perspective on this. Considering the market we're in, what differing structures are you starting to see more you know, increasingly from captive clients or those interested in, in setting up a captive? Yeah, thanks, Richard. I suppose it, maybe to reiterate some of the, the the points Cara made, you know, there's certainly an uptake in at least evaluating captives and, and ART in general. I think a lot of the clients previously maybe who felt they've been too small or, or perhaps just in the soft market, the, the benefits have financial benefits haven't been there. I think they're probably reaching a level uh, at which it's, it's certainly worth evaluating. 
I think across the board, the key driver seems to be around sort of capacity and price. Um, as Karen mentioned, con- you know, from a consulting perspective, we're certainly certainly busier this year, and that that should probably continue next year. But I think if you look at the, the on the assumption that the market acts rationally, that they should be certainly worth it should be certainly worth evaluating whether the the challenges that the companies are facing in, in the in the hardened market could be mitigated by maybe retaining more risk. I think the captives are providing benefits around evidence of insurance and access to additional markets. But I think when we look at it from a consulting perspective, I think you've to be to be open and consider any number of structures. So so it's it's not just captives. We're seeing corporate balance sheet arrangements, trust arrangements or or simply just structured reinsurance placements. PCCs um, and segregated cells in Bermuda have have also had a, an, an uptick tick in interest. I think although the captive structures may 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 differ, I think the the process to evaluate the viability is probably remaining consistent. I think um, if it's purely financial or premium related, generally the approach has been to to really understand whether it makes financial sense to retain risk. And often the best way here is to look at the analytics or, or the historical claims and and sort of predict future claims to understand understand whether whether it makes sense to retain that risk. I think um, we're coming we're coming from probably from a soft market where the answer often uh, historically has been no. Um, and, and now we are seeing those rewards coming through or, or perhaps there's just no no alternative. Um, maybe the cover is just not available in, in the current market. So I suppose if it makes financial sense, then the next step really is to understand what's the best way. And I think that's that's to the structures I'd mentioned. What's the what's the best mechanism to retain that risk? And, and that could be a number, a number of a uh, number of those risks. So uh, one of the areas, Derek, that we've we've started to hear a little bit more of this year or in the last two years during this hard market is deductible reimbursement programs. Can you explain for listeners that may not be as familiar and myself as well in more detail what these are and, and how or why uh, we're seeing deductible reimbursement programs uh, being used more often in this market? Deductible reimbursements have been around for for a number of years. I know a, a lot of the the car rental companies, for example, would have operated deductible reimbursement arrangements. So essentially, it's where there's uh, an evidence evidence of insurance uh, required, and it's on a ground up basis. Um, so, uh, for example, you could you could have a corporate in in a particular jurisdiction. It's generally single jurisdictions where they, they're operated, so they'll have a separate uh, deductible reimbursement arrangement for for each for each country. So the fronting insurer will provide issue to issue the policy ground up. They will pay the cla- pay the claims. However, there will be a deductible reimbursement arrangement with the corporate then for for uh, any claims which fall within that deductible limit. So it's it's a way essentially of of the corporate retaining that frequency layer. So in effect, the corporate is financing this deductible through a formalized balance sheet fund arrangement, or some some refer to them as uh, virtual captives and. Within this layer, there's collateral then, which is provided to the fronting partner generally for the loss pick. So I think historically under this structure, there's generally been no IPT levied on this frequency layer. And I think the the, the argument has been that it's it's known claims, it's attritional claims, and, and therefore there's no risk transfer. I think in the soft market, these lower deductibles, which were available in the market, um, have probably been acceptable. So there hasn't there's a materiality aspect. But I think uh, an impact of the hardening market is that these deductible layer levels are being forced higher. So the market is enforcing a higher retention. And, and you're now finding that these are operating in more of a maybe a, a volatility layer. So, and, and with that comes IPT considerations. And I think that, that probably leads in maybe to Joe to give more of a more, more detail on that. Yes, thank you, Derek. Um, I suppose where 
I'd like to start when, when thinking about this, um, and this might seem a little bit obvious, but insurance premium tax is due on insurance premiums. And this is quite important to think about when we're considering the deductible reimbursements. The argument has traditionally gone, uh, there isn't a contract of insurance and there isn't a premium payment, therefore we don't have IPT. But as Derek says, as the use of these structures uh, are increasing and for increasingly high values, these ideas perhaps start to get tested a little bit more from an IPT perspective. And when we look at IPT laws and various insurance tax legislation, quite often we find that they don't actually define insurance or insurance contracts. And this, this creates a bit of a, a problem. In fact, if we look at the UK tax authorities, HMRC, they are quite clear that there is no statutory definition of insurance. Instead, they suggest that there are indicators of an insurance contract. So um, there must be, for example, a legally enforceable contract. There should be a premium payment by an insured or on behalf of an insured. Uh, there needs to be an insurable interest. Uh, a number of various indicators, not all of which have to be there for it to be considered contracts of insurance. And as you can therefore see, this becomes a little bit grey when determining uh, whether we have IPT due or not. HMRC is also clear, however, that self-insurance is not insurance, uh, or at least for IPT purposes. Um, so when the organisation or the policyholder is comfortable that it can just take on the risk of the loss, or even where it sets aside a separate fund or reserves uh, to cover certain claims, HMRC says this is not insurance no IPT. But when it comes to deductible reimbursement arrangements, HMRC's internal guidance actually only identifies one type of cover uh, where this occurs, that's employer's liability, um, and treats this outside the scope of IPT. However, it goes on to say that where a tax officer comes across an arrangement that does not specifically meet the circumstances that HMRC has set out, and there is any suspicion uh, that the structure is being designed to reduce IPT uh, or gain an unfair advantage, then that tax officer is instructed to raise this further and investigate it in more detail. And the point is that whilst these structures have been fairly common for a while, it's not clear cut when they should or should not be treated as taxable. And to date, HMRC's interest has maybe as demonstrated by the sparse guidance on them being limited, but the values uh, increase and therefore the tax office looks to gain more revenues uh, and it's clear that this could be an area that they start to look into in, in more detail. Yeah, thanks, Joe. A really nice explanation there of why that why there is a grey area. Um, let's move on to another area which is becoming, or is already quite common and increasingly common, Derek, and that's uh, deductible buy-downs. Can you give us a similar explanation on, on what deductible buy-downs are and, and their role with uh, with captives? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is one of, you know, I suppose the, the, the key benefits where captives have been used historically and are probably, you know, obviously in a, in a hard market are, are going to, to see even more use. I think 
it's probably where we look at at, at the drivers for, for a captive evaluation and there's financial drivers and the strategic and this is certainly one of the more strategic drivers. I think often, uh, for example, often many corporates will have subsidiaries or business units in many, many territories. So often the risk tolerance or risk appetite of the, the smaller subsidiaries will, will, will be materially lower than the risk appetite of the parent. So in terms of the, the captive has been used historically to in effect be uh, operate as a deductible buy-down. So where the captive is in play, you could have a subsidiary which has, let's just say, a deductible of 100K. The market is now pushing the, the placement to a million. So the captive, in effect, can can allow a mechanism whereby you can buy down the, the deductible to, to a manageable level at a local level. So I think the, the although in, in this case, the million may be fine from a group perspective, if the smaller business units were to be, were to retain that, that that level of risk and they had a claim, it, it could potentially bankrupt them so they can't withstand that volatility on, on the P&L. So in effect, really, the captive is acting to bridge the gap between local risk tolerance and the risk tolerance of the, of the parent. But within that, you can you can sort of optimize a more efficient uh, market attachment point. I think to Joe's point, al- although the HMRC, HMRC mentioned self-insurance is not insurance and therefore IPT is not relevant, I think where we are finding and, and as, as we sort of take a closer look at, at captives as they come under maybe more BEP scrutiny or internal tax scrutiny, we're finding that the captive structure is more aligned to the BEP's recommendations because what, what it does is it allows the, the risk to be retained. It, it also provides uh, a compliant mechanism for cross-border premium and claims flows. So if, if you think of, of that instance where the, there's a million market attachment point and if the local uh, subsidiary in a, in, a, in a small country were to retain that and and had the claim, getting the funds into that jurisdiction can often incur additional taxes or or different taxes to, to IPT. So again, that's where the cap we're finding the captive is is more aligned to the BEPS recommendations. Fantastic. And then Karen, regarding the deductible buy downs, how how does this structure impact IPT compliance? I mean, for deductible buy downs, really from the compliance purpose, they're far more straightforward, far more straightforward structure. Where the captive is providing the buy down, this is via an insurance policy on which IPT would obviously be due, accordingly dependent on where the risk is located. The difference here, obviously, is that for a captive program, there will be an increased cost over a deductible reimbursement program, i.e. there will be IPT due on the buy down policy which is an additional cost to the group as a whole. Uh, And although the premium itself isn't leaving the group, IPT, as we know, is normally, unlike VAT, it's not recoverable. So where we've got any kind of cross-border or multi-jurisdictional policy, the IPT consequences invariably multiply. Typically, although not always, that the tax is due where the risk is located. Uh, But if we consider that each local policy that has such an arrangement in place, a deductible buy-down could be in a different country or even state or province within a country, then there are obviously multiple IPT regimes and rules that you need to understand and comply with in the same as with any global programme. So as we mentioned earlier, Derek, we are seeing more non-traditional lines going into captives and presumably these are a lot of uh, a lot of these are non-admitted. Can you talk us through uh, non-admitted insurance uh, regarding financial interest clauses and how we're seeing them used by corporates with their captive? Yeah, thanks, Richard. So, so we're certainly seeing a, a you know a, a number of different ways in which companies are, are now trying to cover uninsurable or or, or 
perhaps just risks which are, are, are not available at a, an economic price in the market. Often this is a, a non-admitted policy or, as you say, a financial interest clause. I think it's important to note some of this is probably post-Brexit related. So where previously we, we would have had, for example, an EU-admitted insurer, so a, a captive, for example, in Dublin or Malta, was permitted to issue an admitted policy into the UK from an EU captive domicile. Um, I think obviously post-Brexit, I think it's fair to say at this point that that access will be lost to the UK. So I think companies are, are therefore exploring whether they can issue this on, on, on a non-admitted uh, basis and, and which, you know, quite often this is possible in, into the UK. So so that's 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 one, I suppose, impact we've seen and one area where we've seen an increase in, in these, these risks being or, or this type of risk being written. I think in terms of the challenges with the with the insurance market is also driving driving increase in this as well. So risks which are just simply just not available in the economic price. I think people are probably sick to death of hearing about financial lines and DNO. But as Karen mentioned, we're seeing it right across the board. Um, I, I think one thing I'd say around DNO, although it may be possible to issue issue a policy, I think it's not without its challenges. Certainly, I think we've seen in the market some fronting companies have or, or commercial fronting companies have have exited. Um, so I think to say a captive is a good fit for DNO, I think is, is, is as I say, it's not without its challenges. I think particularly side A will generally require full collateralization. I think side B and C is is more of a fit, but I think it's it's probably the the appetite of fronting companies is 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 higher where it's combined with other lines of business, so multi-line, sort of multi-year. As with any risk, really understanding where the risk resides is important. So if it's been issued on a, on a non-admitted basis, uh, understanding where that where that risk resides, and I think it is important because really due care needs to be given around the IPT and, and any potential impact or exposure. And Joe, then, what are the IPT considerations on a financial interest clause? Well, yeah, a financial interest clause is a, an interesting one uh, from the IPT perspective, really. So where we have non-admitted insurance, as, as Derek was saying, we've got to be conscious of where the risks are um, and we have potential IPT exposures or tax exposures in those various jurisdictions. And as Karen was mentioning right at, right, right at the beginning, that could be uh, an issue for that local policyholder having to comply. Financial interest clauses, however, are completely different. Instead of having allocations of premiums across various jurisdictions where the local entities and risks, in inverted commas, are located, all the premium is allocated to the domicile of the parent. As the argument goes that we are ensuring the balance sheet loss of the parent, that's to say the reduction in the financial interest the parent has in its various subsidiaries, rather than the actual risks uh, across the globe. So from an IPT perspective, this makes things much more straightforward. We've got one IPT regime to worry about, where the policyholder is uh, located, one IPT calculation, one IPT declaration, far more straightforward from an IPT perspective. Um, There is a however here, and it's a fairly significant however, there can be some quite serious practical problems from the policyholder perspective. Perhaps the most prominent is when it comes to a claim payment, that claim will have to be paid to the parent. Uh, so any loss incurred locally uh, is potentially uninsured. And then the parent has the issue of getting that capital into that territory. And that transfer of capital ceases to be a claim payment and, and, and an injection of capital. So potentially exposed to other taxes, corporation taxes, income taxes, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. 
Well, thank you to Karen, Joe and Derek for joining this last GCP short of 2020. If you want to find out more about Karen, Joe and TMF, then please do visit their Friend of the Podcast page on globalcaptivepodcast.com. Links will be in the episode description as well. In the meantime, stay safe, stay well and Merry Christmas, captives. (laughs) 